Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Tourisia in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. So far this year, we've spent a lot of time talking about our media's coverage of China and how it has been covering the increasingly fraught relationship between Australia, China and the US. One group we haven't spoken to, nor has the media for that matter, is Chinese Australians. What do Chinese Australians think of media coverage like the Red Alert series that was recently in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age? And how important is WeChat to this community? To answer this and more, we're joined by UTS academic Professor Wanning Sun. She is an expert on Chinese media in Australia and a co-author of Digital Transnationalism, a look at Chinese language media in Australia. Professor Wanning Sun, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you. Okay, let's start our discussion with your recent article in the conversation. You're looking at the Red Alert series that ran in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And in the aftermath, we've heard a lot from the hawks and the doves on this issue, but we've heard very little from the Chinese community in Australia. How do you think people in the Chinese community view these articles? You are right in saying that um, much of the media commentary has been pretty much made by people from the point of from a, a range of other points of view, but not so much from the uh, Chinese people's uh, um, Chinese Australian people's point of view. Um, uh, like the uh, a lot of uh, uh, critiques um, that uh, you read in the media, uh, uh, you know, of the Red Alert series, um, the people that I've spoken to as part of uh, of uh, um, a survey and a project that I'm, I'm doing at the moment. Um, and when I ask them questions about, um, you know, what does it mean? Uh, how does it f- uh, make you feel? And to be reading um, constantly on daily basis uh, stories about news uh, papers or media stories about. Uh, when the war is going to start, it's going to be starting in six months or is it two years or three years? Um, um, you know, it does it concern you? Um, most people say it concerns them a lot. So now there are two sets of data I've got here. One is um, the more quantitative data. I asked a question to in a survey. Uh, that I conducted um, be- even before the red alert came out because I conducted this survey in January. And one of the questions I asked in the survey is, um, the survey was, was is, is generally about the Chinese uh, Mandarin speaker as um, a consumption of their media habit and particularly in relation to Australia media's coverage of China and Chinese-Australia uh, issues. So, um, under this broad umbrella of media consumption, I ask a question about um, uh, to what extent are you concerned uh, with the uh, uh, media coverage about the possibility of a, a war with China? And uh, uh, overwhelming majority of them say, I'm very, very concerned, extremely concerned. And 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 at a smaller percentage, you said I'm, you know, uh, quite concerned. Only a very very minuscule percentage of people say 
I'm not, it doesn't bother me at all. And so that's the kind of data I reported in that conversation article that I wrote recently. Um, but um, I also follow up with more uh, sort of uh, detailed one-to-one interviews uh, with uh, individuals because that survey was, uh, you know, uh, participated by 500 um, people. I didn't know who they were. They were meant to be anonymous. But I, then I was trying to understand why they're concerned about this kind of media coverage. So I actually, you know, conducted some one-to-one kind of in-depth, open-ended kind of questions and just sit down with them and say, look, um, why does it concern you? In what sense and in what way does it concern you? Then I was able to uh, get a, a more nuanced and a complex sort of sense of the nature of, of their concern. And, um of course, one of the concerns that they have is that, um, sure, they're reading these stories about, uh, you know, you know, all these speculations about uh, whether there is going to be a war with China, whether it's going to be happening in Australia, and how long. They say, you know, we 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 would like to see some evidence, you know, to 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 back up this kind of speculation. Because we don't like all this negative news about China, but nevertheless, we're rational people. So if you can provide evidence to show that China is indeed on the move, you know, it's doing all sorts of things that which make it categorically kind of clear that this is going to happen, then we will use our rational mind to say, well, this is indeed concern. But we don't see anything like that. They say all these media speculations don't even have that kind of evidence that I'm looking for. So they feel that kind of disappointed and frustrated with this media coverage that provides, you know, very little evidence. Um, So this is the first third concern they have. The second concern they have is actually they think, um, and I tend to agree with them, that is um, the more you talk about war, the more likely that you you may just make the war happen. It's kind of become a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy they believe mm-hmm. that this is could be the case and 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 sure you know if you look at uh, the history of journalism if you look at for instance back in the history of uh, yellow journalism in the US and uh, you know uh, the US journalism had a big role to play in you know uh, drumming up the you know the the the, the, uh, Amer- the Spanish war and so the American Spanish war so as a result of that um People say, you know, you're not really helping uh, the peace movement uh, uh, to prevent war. You seems to be just sort of uh, egging it on, sort of uh, um, engaging what they call warmongering. So this is the second thing that, that they're concerned about. Finally, the thing that really, really <laughs> concerned them is what actually, if it does eventuate that there is a war between China and the US over Taiwan and somehow Australia is involved. And if that's the case, that categorically put Australia on the war path with, with China and then China will, you know, will certifiably become Australia's national uh, enemy. So, you know, so anybody who are from that enemy t- uh, country would be likely to be considered as, you know, um, alien sort of elements or uh, uh, subject to suspicions or distrust. And um, 
And then the people, you know, cited examples of what happened to some of the uh, Italian migrants during the war and some of the German migrants, uh, German migrants during the Second Mm. World War internment. And they say, you know, you think that this wouldn't happen because we're in the 21st century now where society has changed so much. It's no longer white policy, uh, white Australia policy anymore. You think that that wouldn't happen. But who can assure us? Nobody can, they say, because at the at the end of the day, when war does break out, you know, national security is paramount and all bets are off. So this is something uh, that really worries me. And one of the interviewees, she's actually quite distressed. And she said, you know, my daughter is in the middle school and prim- in, a, in, a, in, a, in a high school and she comes back home and they discuss it at school and she comes back home. And she said, mom, is China going to invade us? And she said, I don't even know what to say to her, you know. And so, you know, and another person uh, who's lived in Australia for more than 20 years, and she's from Shanghai, she was also quite distressed when I asked her. And she said, uh, she said, you asked me a question about um, um, have I thought about this possibility and what would happen to me? She said, I don't want to think about it. I can't bring myself to think about it it's too horrible to even to contemplate thinking about it I don't want to go into that details you know she said things like you know because I have to I might have to take side that's that's implicit in a lot of the the, the media coverage here that there's a jingoistic talk that you know basically says it's time for Chinese people living in Australia to pick a side. Yes. So that's implicit in what's in this coverage. I mean, so you're saying the Chinese community is seeing that and feeling that pressure. But the other thing I wanted to bring up too is like this is a community that's been under a lot of stress um, uh, during the the COVID pandemic. Uh, Mm. There was a lot of scapegoating and a lot of racism uh, directed towards uh, Chinese people in Australia. Do, Do you see this as a community that is under stress? Well, I absolutely see this as a community under stress. I mean, the word, the word that's, this phrase has been used so many times. It's be, it is a cliche now is that, they, they, but they're literally, you know, caught between the two, uh, sort of, uh, increasingly sort of, uh, belligerent hostile nations. And, um, you know, it, it is, of course, in their very own interest to see the improvement in the Australian China relationship and their kind of, you know, a lot of them are kind of relieved and heartened to see the change of a government. Um, but nevertheless, on daily basis, uh, there are issues that, you know, that that get thrown up every day. You know, last month it could be AUKUS and this month it could be TikTok. You know, uh, you know some, you know, uh, uh, always kind of this narrative about China threat always sort of manifests itself in some different in a, in a form of different issues and, and topics, of course. Um, uh, so one thing that really concerns me as an academic is um, what does it mean to this community who is on day-to-day basis uh, exposed to uh, a media coverage of China and the Chinese-Australian uh, communities um, that 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 actually uh, that adopts a, a quite narrow. Um, frameworks about you know reporting. So I, that's part of the you know well, I, I've let, got twenty questions in the survey, and, and I'm in the, right in the middle of processing the data that just come out of this survey, and I'm following up you know trying to make sense of this data survey by asking some more detailed questions from in these individuals, and um, 
and I, I can tell you, as you know, as a preliminary kind of finding, one of the key findings is that um, uh, there is a high level of um, alienation um, from the mainstream Australian English language media. They are very concerned. They read it. They read it. They pay attention to it, and they read it. And some, some, you know, uh, some very small number of them uh, express their unhappiness through, you know, um, you know, reposting in the social media and you know, commenting with friends and colleagues and uh, and and and, and then, uh, people in the in, in their WeChat group. Others, you know, I ask, what do you do? Mostly just said nothing. There's nothing we can do. We have no voice, you well, know. And I said. Let's let's yeah. look at that though, because you've you've talked about the narrow coverage in the media. Um, Chinese Australians account for about six percent of the country's population, but in cities like Sydney, it's eleven percent of the population. It's about nine mm. percent in Melbourne. I mean, do mm. you see that reflected in our media and in our newsrooms? Well, I think um, you you know, if you look at ABC. Um, um, ABC now has quite a quite a a, a sizable sizable um, so-called Chinese speaking Chinese looking staff members and a journalist and they have a Chinese version of the ABC online mm-hmm. and so you can't really just uh, we can't we can't actually simply say oh there, there's lack of a diversity in our media yep. because on the on because if you look at it and 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 the SBS as well SBS has Mandarin uh, news as well uh, uh, radio uh, um, I think the problem is not so much the uh, lack of diversity in terms of the uh, people uh, uh, working in the media is the lack of uh, perspectives, right? I, I think at the end of the day, I know as a media studies scholars, I know that journalists work within the institutions, right? And uh, journalists are subject to a whole range of constraints, right? You know, they're you know, subject to time constraint, they're subject to economic you know cost and budget constraint they're subject to um, the whims and the the, the the desires of the editors who might veto or who might want them to write stories in a certain way and they also have their own personal ambitions about you know writing certain kind of stories and making their mark in in, in, in a certain field and I do understand that you know a lot of journalists do want to Present as comprehensive and as in-depth sort of a um, um, sort of a picture of of China as possible. But there are just so many reasons: economic, social, cultural, technological, as well institution. All these factors conspired to making coverage of China in a complex and a nuanced way very very difficult. Um, for journalists, well, a, a lot of it basis. doesn't. A lot of it doesn't fit the narratives that are, are being pushed at the moment. No, that's that. That is exa- exactly right. Uh, I have talked to individual journalists who, who, who um, you know, Chinese uh, speaking journalists who work in the mainstream Australian newspapers. I wouldn't mention the name of the <laughs> media outlet um, because I don't think they they appreciate being named. But they actually talk to me and say, "I have pitched this story." To the editor, because I think it is something about the Chinese community here that's, you know, that will be quite interesting. I'll pitch this story to them and they say there won't be much interest, right? So 
they have the initiative, but they wouldn't pass the you know the the their supervisors. I also have uh, seen examples whereby uh, a Chinese version of the story about Chinese community sentiment is published and written, and in, in a mainstream sort of uh, uh, media outlet. Um, um, you know, and much to the delight of the Chinese community, and it's once the kind of stories get circulated and, and people like it. For instance, there was a story about how the Chinese community respect reacted to the um, accusation of street photographers at the Avalon exhibition show as spies, and uh, so the, uh, you know, a, a Chinese story has been written about it, and you know, it's published. Um, you know, by the mainstream media. And people were really, really heartened to see that there are, you know, there are journalists who are trying to represent that point of view. But nevertheless, the, the English team, English language team, which is the mainstream part of it, did not want to publish it. So, and I just thought, what, what, why? You know, if anybody wants to know about the, 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 the hard emotional difficulty and the mental anguish experienced by the Chinese community. It's not the Chinese communities themselves. They already know that. It is the mainstream journalists and the mainstream public. But nevertheless, they don't, there's no appetite for that. Or they don't see it, you know, uh, strategically useful or important to publish this kind of thing, which, you know, makes some people in the Chinese community they ask this question, why not the English version of this story? You know, is this because they're trying to narrow cast? They're trying to say one thing to to us and project another kind of a, a, a sort of view to the mainstream. So this is the kind of complexity we're looking at. Let's turn to your book, uh, Digital Transnationalism. It's the first English book to look at the Chinese language media in Australia. How how big is the Chinese media in Australia? Ah, oh, that's a very good question, Anthony. Um, how big? Um. Depends on what you mean by Chinese language media, because first of all, Chinese language media has a very, very long history, right? As early as the gold rush started, it there will be there were Chinese uh, newspapers uh, uh, catering to to the, to the first arrivals. Um, so, but you know, we kind of sort of could actually look at the whole sector uh, as consisting of. Um, Two parts. One is what we call the legacy media, traditional media, and then the other is the digital media. The traditional media, you have the long-standing tradition of Chinese newspapers in, and, and Chinese uh, um, magazines in print form that has been on for decades and decades and decades. With the interruption of white Australian policy, and then they come back. So this, and then there is also uh, uh, Chinese language radio as well as Chinese language television. Mm. And some uh, um, initially were sort of Cantonese speaking because that's most of the, uh, um, you know, demographically speaking, most of them speaking Cantonese. And then since the uh, uh, increasing number of arrivals from the PRC since 1980s and 1990s, this um, uh, traditional uh, media, Chinese media outlet have adopted more of a, um, you know, kind of dual kind of uh, language system. So catering to the Mandarin speaking uh, listeners and the readers, as well as to the Cantonese ones. So that's what we call the traditional media. But all this was about to change um, with the internet. Um, so, so in a, in in a, in the nineties uh, and early, uh, you know, uh, two thousand twenty first century first first two years, few years of twenty first century, we started to have news, uh, Chinese news in digital form, in the form of a news. Uh, website, 
right? And so uh, people know, uh, you know, fewer and fewer people actually went to the news agencies to buy these Chinese language newspapers or a lot of them are actually distributed free, you know, outside the Chinese grocery stores and news agencies, but they become less and less relevant. And what become more and more sort of uh, uh, useful and accessible and free to access uh, are this digital content. But this digital content didn't really take off until the adoption of the digital uh, of social media platforms such as WeChat and, and QQ and other Chinese language. Well, I'm really interested to media. unpack WeChat because this is something that I think uh, that English-speaking Australians don't have a f- proper understanding of. I mean, how important is WeChat to the Chinese community? It's absolutely important to the Chinese community. Um, WeChat, um, in the in our popular sort of uh, or sort of a public sort of imagination, WeChat is a problematic uh, Chinese uh, social media platform, uh, and there is a few. There is a range of assumptions that are made about WeChat, uh, and one of them is that WeChat is is first and foremost an instrument of Chinese Communist Party's propaganda. So, the, uh, so that's the kind of that's that's the first one. So the, the book that you've just mentioned have actually studied how WeChat operates and how it's used to turn the content uh, 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 English language uh, sort of uh, media content such as Sydney Morning Herald and ABC or the Australian, turn this content, uh, you know, uh, into something that the the Chinese speaking communities could access to. WeChat played an intermediary sort of a role, if you like, um, carrying content from um, mainstream English language um, sort of uh, content. So it is very important for them because that's usually the uh, platform on which they access the, uh, the the mainstream media. They don't actually necessarily go and buy a copy of Sydney Morning Herald, mm-hmm. nor do they necessarily subscribe to the Australian, uh, Australian Financial Review. They usually get it through the links Mm-hmm. And the postings are on WeChat, so that's 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 why it's so important. So our study has systematically looked at the content that's carried on WeChat. We do content analysis, quantitative analysis. We do content analysis. We did a narrative analysis. We use random sampling. We just and found out just just what kind of stories appeared, and and and, and we we cannot. We're not convinced. We cannot find evidence that WeChat in Australia was used primarily as instrument of Chinese Communist Party's propaganda. Sure, everybody wants to do propaganda using social media, and and Chinese prop- governments and its agencies and all its various departments probably do. They do that as well. I see evidence of that. But to say that you know WeChat in Australia has primarily been you know uh, used in for that purpose is just not. Accurate. So that's that's the first thing in in, in relation to your question. The second question about the importance of WeChat is um, is uh, how WeChat is used to also carry the content of the Chinese language uh, digital content online. As I said before, once upon a time, ten years ago, uh, there was just a lot of digital content on in the form of website. You know, Chinese news website Mm -hmm. but very limited people very you know not many people you know went out of their way to 
go on the website and click on a website and read the news. But now everybody's got a mobile phone. Everybody got the WeChat app on their mobile phone. And now uh, this, this sector sees that is in order to push their content out, it's absolutely important that they actually use WeChat. So because they can actually uh, upload or push, um, you know, a certain number of their stories on, uh, you know, on each given day onto the WeChat platform for free through the WeChat subscription account, right? Mm -hmm. As a result of that, as a result of that, then people can just read it on the phone. Now, hence, here comes the, uh, here comes the paradox, censorship, right? WeChat is censored and regulated by the Chinese government, right? Anything that's very critical of the Chinese government or the Communist Party, and if you use keywords that trigger this sort of a censoring system, it would be blocked. Well, is, that, um, is that censoring also in Australia? Yes. it's uh, Well, it's not to the same extent because, again, WeChat is a very different, different very, 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 uh, very complex system because mm-hmm. very few people understand there is a one app, two systems kind of a, oh, a scenario. Okay. In other words, Weixin in China is extremely, extremely subject to, to, to the Chinese regulation, whereas WeChat is for overseas users, right? And it's operated by uh, 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 in Singapore, right? So as a result of that, um, you still cannot escape the uh, sort of uh, scrutiny of the of the Chinese uh, regulators if they really really want to you know to see your content. But at the end of the day, it's the scrutiny is much less, right? Um, having said that, you know this Chinese language media sector, um, in order to get their content out, um, push it through the con- uh, WeChat, have to make sure that, um, you know, the content is not blocked. <laughs> so in other words, there is a certain level of self-censorship of the content. Right. Um, with, with, uh, because it is they have to rely on WeChat. But in fact, so far, some media, Chinese media outlet have already realized the limitation of using WeChat. So now they are developing their own apps, right? For instance, Sydney Today, the biggest digital uh, Chinese outlet has developed its own Sydney Today app as well as using the WeChat. So it's a dual carriage system, right? But even even the, you know, uh, and so even that, they still have to rely on WeChat quite a lot. So what I'm trying to say here is that in our book, we demonstrate there is, there is, there is a difference between self-censorship and a top-down censorship from China. And we actually insisted on making this distinction, and which some people find it baffling. They would say, well, what, what, what do you make? Why do you make this distinction, top-down you know, censorship from China or the self-censorship in order to evade the censorship? What's the difference? The outcome is the same because at the end of the day, critical content about Chinese Communist Party is not there. True, that's true. But if you actually don't make the distinction, you actually kind of Sub, 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 you buy into that kind of assumption that yep. this community is doing that on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. They are the mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist Party, whereas in fact they adopted the strategy of censorship only as a business model, risk 
adverse sort of business model in order to survive in the marginal space of the Australian media sector. They can survive. And not only that, they have developed a lot of strategies of evading, of resisting uh, a censorship in ways that is quite innovative and it's quite creative and it's very seldom um, recognized, understood and appreciated by the Australian journalists who write an- yet another article about WeChat and and you know and so so that 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 is one of some of the things that we try to sort of tease out in our book. And, and look, I want to unpack a little bit of this as well because the the Chinese community isn't a monolith. Uh, but, you know, people who've been here you know, since the gold rush or Chinese people who came here in the aftermath of the Tiananmen Square massacre would have mm. a very, very different relationship with mainland China to mm. recent arrivals. It, it, is those kinds of different relationships also um, reflected back th- in WeChat? Oh, yes. Um as as you said rightly, uh, the so-called Chinese community, I actually uh, usually don't even use this term because Chinese community, there is no such thing as Chinese mm. communities because they're just so diverse in terms of history of migration, in terms of political and linguistic sort of grouping and, and, and in terms of, uh, you know, uh, how long they have lived in Australia. Um, um, uh, you know, but having said that, um, the... The latest cohort is what I call the latest cohort, that is the first generation um, migrants who have um, migrated from the People's Republic of China, PRC. Um, they are um, numbering at uh, something like more than a half a million. So if you look at uh, the entire sort of population, one, uh, 1.4 million at the moment, a half a million is quite a lot, mm. right? And because the rest are in a, a mixture of everything, of, of chi- all kinds of uh, Chinese diaspora. So um, WeChat is primarily used by the latest cohort, right? So in fact, if you look at, you know, you could even say uh, what kind of, uh, platform you use says a lot about your identity, right? Uh, you, of course, you have some um, other uh, f- uh, Chinese Australians who are not from mainland still also using WeChat, but that's also usually because they have something to do, they do business, they have friendships with the mainlanders, uh, or they have you know um, you know they have business reasons for, for doing that. But primarily, it's used by the mainlanders, and whereas other like people from Malaysia, you know, they they prefer to use WhatsApp, and people from Taiwan. They might prefer to use Line, or uh, and from uh, people from Hong Kong, they also use Facebook as well as WhatsApp. So you know, uh, I I think that this mainland communities use WeChat, and some of them may use uh, you know a couple of other um, uh, social media platforms. Um, so yes, uh, so it is it is quite diverse. And uh, there is certain sort of interface between these platforms, but um, at the end of the day, it's quite they are quite distinct. I want to end with uh, on a on a on a, a, a fairly positive note here. Um, I mean, we've we've talked about how the how the Chinese community in Australia feels uh, that they're under attack by the media here, but it's also interesting to see that they have made their own kind kind of independent media 
here um, that they're, they're tapping into. But it does seem that there, there is uh, many of them are feeling, feeling disenfranchised. Um, mm. are, are you seeing a new sort of form of cosmopolitanism coming uh, arising in this group? Uh, yeah, it's interesting you use the word cosmopolitanism. Um, I mean, I'll do some positive messages to, 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 to report to you. It's not all doom and gloom um, because, um, you know, the, the survey that I, I was talking about primarily was a concern with um, the question of what does this daily exposure uh, uh, to hostile media coverage do to your sense of belonging and your commitment to Australia society, right? That's really the overriding question I ask people. And... Um, Somewhat surprisingly, uh, the questions came back and and tell me in quite sort of clear terms that despite all this media alienation and despite the you know fact that you know they 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 have somewhat lost faith in the objectivity of the Australian media and in the professionalism of Australian media, they do on the other hand feel that they are now living in a much better <laughs> political system. And they appreciate democracy, appreciate the capacity to, to, to speak freely and, um, and, and, and enjoy Australian lifestyle. And so, so, so as a result of that, when I ask them the question, I put it, you know, put them on the spot and say, compare with five years ago, do you think your sense of belonging to Australia has um, remained the same or decreased or increased? Um, more people uh, uh, than others actually say, uh, I feel I've, you know, my sense of belonging has increased despite all this, and which is kind of a little bit sort of surprising to me. And uh, in order to make sense of this uh, slightly surprising data, I conducted a range of interviews with individuals uh, and I said, tell me what you think, what this is the case. And of course, you and I don't have time to talk about this range mm. of um, uh, reasons that people offer me, and and that will be um, included in my actual report that's coming up in June or July. But uh, it, it is really fascinating how they explain this away, this paradox. But the, the the positive message is that at the end of the day, there's a higher level of appreciation of Australia's political system, its democratic process, and the capacity to the capacity to to vote out a government, <laughs> you know, and, and have the right to do that. And so uh, I don't, I'm don't. i not sure about the word cosmopolitanism, but there is yeah. certainly a, a, a increased level of political engagement for the sake of, you know, defending their own rights as Australian citizens, you know, uh, and becoming more interested in news and current affairs, uh, more interested in exploring uh, ways of, uh, you know, developing uh, uh, their own sort of uh, visibility in the public debate, and see what are the ways that they can, uh, you know, uh, you know, pursue in order to ha have a voice. You know, so I, I I see a lot of encouraging signs in the recent um, elections, uh, federal election last year, um, Victoria elections a few months ago, and recent New South Wales election and Aston election. There is just a lot of uh, debate and a lot of uh, information uh, about learning to be citizens, your rights as citizens, and you know, debating the pros and the cons from different parties, all happening on WeChat. You know, and, and I think that's a really, a, a, a really, really a positive uh, sign. And I think it's about, you know, uh, inc incre increased level of ownership 
as as someone living in this country and call this country my 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 own my home and feel that you know I'm one of the members of the society I want to you know exercise my right as well as fulfill my obligations so and I think you know that that is uh, happening now uh, in the last few years which is really positive well on that note uh, professor Wanning Sun thank you for being on for the state it's a pleasure thank you Anthony and thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of TuruCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is for the state AU. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>